We would like to welcome you this morning to Mission Bible Fellowship as Pastor Stuart Guthrie brings a message from God's Word. We hope it challenges, encourages, and strengthens your walk with the Lord. We thank you for that wonderful worship. And uh, sure puts us in a, a place to be ready to continue to worship through the teaching of God's Word. Um, the reality is, is I, and, and I'm just going to be frank and forward, um, you know, worship is not just simply singing God's Word, bringing praises to God. That's part of worship. But a part of worship is being in here when we're serving God through the teaching and preaching of His Word. And so if you feel the desire to leave out of here before uh, we get into the teaching and preaching of God's Word, just remember we just sang those songs. And we don't want to sing those songs for no reason. We want to truly worship God by sitting through the teaching of God's Word. Um, so I'm excited about being here this morning. Uh, we've just finished up with the book of Jonah for many of y'all. Y'all endured through those weeks. Um, I learned a lot of things through this book, and I hope you did as well. And we're going to shift gears a little bit this week as we transition into another book. If you thought the book of Jonah was long, First Peter's going to be a little longer. And so we're going to work through First and Second Peter. Uh, we'll be in these books for several months. Uh, that doesn't mean periodically I will not skip out of the book of Peter to uh, preach on some other topics, but that will be our main focus for the next several months. And really, Peter's a great letter, especially for those believers, because the fact uh, is that it was written to believers. Now, I know there may be unbelievers here as well, and I don't want you to sign out because the book was written to believers, um, because... 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate equipped. So all the Scriptures are inspired by God and profitable for teaching. And so my hope is that through this, you may come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So don't sign out because I think there's a lot of wonderful things that you can learn through this book as well. And so I hope that God will begin to draw you to Himself. Today we'll be looking at just a few verses, but don't let that surprise you because the reality is these are probably the two hardest verses I've had to preach through in the whole year that I've been here. Uh, my brain cannot contain that all that was within them. Um, but before we get started and jump right into the book of 1 Peter, I want to talk about the book a little bit. I want to just address the context of the book, what's going on. And so I want to start out by who wrote the book of 1 Peter. Well, I think it's pretty obvious the Apostle Peter wrote this book. Now, there are many scholars who believe that a fisherman of his stature that spoke Aramaic mostly would have a hard time writing the book of 1 Peter. But I don't find it very hard at all to understand and believe that Peter could have been the writer of this book because if you remember, it was inspired by God. And if we believe the God of the universe can create a world, can create people, can create Jesus Christ uh, to die on a cross for our sins, and we can believe that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could be the author of this book, and I believe he is. Um, and as a fisherman, as your pastor, to think God has made me a pastor and to teach the Word of God is even a miracle in itself. 
Uh, most scholars, though, obviously agree with the author of First Peter as Peter. And so we see that the book was written around somewhere around A.D. 62 and 63. And then the question I like to ask is, why do we have the book of First Peter? What's, what's the importance of the book? What is the main reason that the book was written? Well, First Peter is really written to encourage believers, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Okay. Now there's a lot of things in here that contrast the Old Testament, which people say, yes, there's a lot of information that looks like it was written to the Jewish people. But the reality is there's a lot in there that makes sense that it was written to Gentiles as well. And so these new believers were living in a time and in a society in which people were hostile to the message of Jesus Christ, to the good news of Christ. In chapter 4.13 it says, But to the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. Listen, the book is about dealing with trials and sufferings and to keep our mind, our hope, in the salvation that truly only comes through Jesus Christ. Well, I don't want to be all about information today, but it's important that we do get out some of this information so you understand the book in a whole. And there's a lot more information uh, on these subjects in which I've covered, but I simply wanted to fill you with a little context about the books and who it was written to and who it was written by. So let's go to the Lord in this, this morning before we go to prayer, before we go into the message. Father God, I, I thank you for today, and I thank you for this opportunity to be here, to open your word, to teach your truths, Father, your grace is sufficient. And in a time where the American people have become satisfied, comfortable with where we're at, God, I pray for a revival in our country. Lord, we are glad to come and worship today and to be able to look into this letter as you encourage us through your words, the words of Peter. Father, this subject is a tough one, uh, one that's been debated for many, many, many years. And I pray today, God, that what is taught here would be a reflection of your heart, would be the truth of your word, as it is reliable and without error. And Father, I just pray that you use me in spite of me to clearly communicate the word of God today. I pray you fill me with your Holy Spirit. Use me, God, that I might preach the truth, the Word of God. And I ask that you transform the people's lives here today by encouraging them and even leading them to a relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father God, I ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, if you will, this morning, turn with me to 1 Peter. <clears throat> the book of 1 Peter. If you're new to the Bible, uh, we have the book of Hebrews, we have the book of James, and then you have the book of First and Second Peter. And if you go past it, you'll hit Revelations pretty soon, so just go backwards and you'll find there First Peter. One of the things that I, that, that I think would really help you as we study through this book, First and Second Peter, these books, uh, is to read these books on a daily basis. 
to spend time in God's Word in First and Second Peter throughout the next several months. So that you, you can yourself become aware of what's happening within these books. Okay, it takes about 15 and a half minutes to listen to First Peter. How do I know that? Because I listen to it about every day. Uh, it takes about 15 and a half minutes to listen. And then you can follow along, you can read. Um, it takes you only about 80 hours to read through the whole Bible. So, you know, use your time wisely. It's one of the things that God has given us that is precious to us. And it's a way we can give self-sacrificially back to the Lord is to stay in His Word. And so really there are only five chapters. And it will help you tremendously to understand what's going on in these books as we study through. So today I want to begin by giving you an outline of 1 Peter. And my hope is that you will remember this outline. That's my objective is to remember this outline. And, and as we go through it, this outline will grow and we'll begin to get subtitles underneath it. And then it will expand our knowledge of the book of 1 Peter. And so as we're dealing with people in our normal day's lives, we're able to invest into them our knowledge that we get from God's Word here. And so, without delay, let's look at the outline of First and Second Peter. Well, number one in that outline, if you will, hit the slide. Salutation, uh, verses 1 to 2. That's what we'll be looking at today. And number two, we see the Christian salvation. It talks about and deals with the Christian's salvation. And then thirdly, we deal with the Christian's relationship and then the Christian's suffering and service, and then the Christian's discipline. And then lastly, we have the conclusion. And today, again, we're going to be simply looking at the first two verses, the salutation. And again, don't be surprised because it's two verses. Uh, these are very tough verses to understand. And so without delay, let's get right into it as we read this morning. First Peter, verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, and Galatia, and Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled by His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. There are three things that this morning I want to get from the text. I want you to gather from what we're going to look at. You can write them down in your, in your notebook. And if, if you're new to taking notes, it would be very wise as we start through these new books to get you a brand new notebook. And at the top, write First Peter. And begin to take notes as we go through exegetically, verse by verse, throughout these books. That way when you're done, you'll have something you can go back and look at when you have questions. And so the three things that I want you to get today is, number one, is we see a description of Peter. Number two, we see a description of his readers. And thirdly, we see a description of God's work. This morning I want to start out with an idea that I got from a guy. I'm not going to say his name because I don't know who he is. I don't know what he teaches, but the idea was good. And he brought to my remembrance many of the failures we see in the Bible. We see that the Apostle Paul failed. Every one of the twelve disciples failed. David, the greatest king to ever live other than Christ, failed. A man after God's own heart. And then we see Moses, a giant among Israel, the giver of the law, the deliverer of the people. What did he do? He failed. How about Jacob, the father of Israel? 
He failed. Isaac, the son of promise, failed. Abraham, the father of the faithful, the prototype of those who are righteous through faith, failed. And even our first parents, Adam and Eve, in their human perfection, failed. Really, the question is, who hasn't failed? I don't know about you, but I think I can say I've failed. I think failure is really a great way to start looking at the book of Peter. Now, you may say, well, why is that? Well, the reality is, is when uh, I think of 1 Peter, I think of failure. And so that brings us to our first point. We see a description of Peter. I don't think that looking at this thing as failure is a bad thing. Uh, I think that it will help us learn from the lessons of many of these people in the Bible. And so as it's brought to my mind the failures of Peter, I want to learn from who he is and the mistakes he's made. 1 Peter 1 reads this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's the first section of part 1, verse 1. Now we see that the book of Peter is quick to give us the author of the book. That's who is named after himself. It's very normal in that day that when we see letters written, uh, they begin the letter with their names. Now I've written some letters this week, and as I wrote those letters at the end of the letter, I would sign my name. Uh, in Christ, Stuart Guthrie. Okay? They didn't have to look towards the end of the letter to see who wrote the book or the letter. Um, it was very normal for them to write at the very beginning. And so we see Peter is the author. And the New American Standard says at the top of the book, if you have the New American Standard, it says the first letter of Peter. Now, while that's not the inspired Word of God, that's just a title that's been inserted, it makes known the author to us. And so Peter, if you remember, was a very interesting guy. Very true in his character. And God used him in mighty ways. But he also failed in a lot of ways as well. He was named by our Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember, Jesus called him the rock. And Peter is a man that is known for great things while he served the Lord. Do you remember the story of the apostles as they were in the middle of the lake floating there? Uh, and Jesus begins to approach them walking on the water. And boy, they are scared out of their minds. They're for sure, they're looking at a ghost. But Jesus says, hey, take courage for it is I. Do not be afraid. What does Peter do? He's the first one to jump out of the boat. And what's he do? He walks on water. How about in Luke chapter 5, all, all the fishermen in here today ought to remember this one. I don't know about you, but growing up fishing, there were many days I went fishing and didn't catch nothing. Peter had been out fishing all night long in the boat. And he's throwing his nets all night and he's tired and wore out and he brings his boat back to the shore. And then the Lord walks up and gets in the boat and says, Hey, take me out into the water and out into the deep. And so he did, and God, Christ began to speak to the people and teach. And when he was done speaking, he asked Peter, throw out his nets. And Peter knew he wasn't going to catch anything. In his mind, he's probably thinking, Jesus, I know you're the Christ, but I'm the fisherman. And I've been fishing all night and I haven't done anything. But out of faith and obedience, he follows what the Lord says and he throws his nets over. And then we see this in 5. 
6 through 8. When they had done this, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled to their uh, partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that it began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. How about our Lord in the garden? Do you remember that? That night... They crossed that old rugged Kidron Valley and made it up to the other side of the, of the Olive Garden. And I've been there, I've walked down that Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount up to that Olive Garden. And you can still today see those olive trees that are there, big and massive from the time of Christ. Christ is there, Peter's there. If you remember, Judas brings a a lot of soldiers, a group of soldiers to arrest Jesus Christ. But Peter's not going to have any part in this. And he draws his sword. If you remember, he cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. He's brave and faithful to the Lord. And how about at Caesarea Philippi? When he's standing there with the other disciples... Jesus is there and they're standing by that that big pool of water. That beautiful place is is a mountain. And there on the mountain is this gigantic hole inside of it. They're standing there at Caesarea Philippi. And He began to question them. Don't miss that them. It's, It's plural. And He says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon the Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He steps out, the crowd, to answer who Christ is. Peter is a man of faith, but this same man we see living in faith, we see this same man falling Many times. The same man that steps out of the boat into the water to walk on water sank because he failed to believe. The same man we see standing up for Christ in the garden and cutting off the ear of Malchus is the same man that denies Christ three times. He was God's man. He was in the inner circle, if you remember. Peter, James, and John, the three main disciples that that Christ used all the time. These men were the only ones on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember. They were the only ones there in Mark 5, 37, when Jesus healed that little girl, when He said, Get up and arise, and she rose from the dead. This, Peter, was a hand-picked apostle. One that is sent. That's what it means. He was the one Christ said, You, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Listen, this is one of those debated issues between the Catholic Church and the Evangelical Church. We don't believe in the Pope. He says, You are the Petros in Greek. And upon this Petra, I will build my church. You see, Peter's not whom the church is built on. Christ is. Christ is the cornerstone and later we will find out He is the chief cornerstone in which the church is built on. Ephesians 2.20 says, Having been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. 
Peter was a special leader. I will give you that. He was a man of God, a man that was used by God mightily. But many times, just like us, he failed. Listen, falling is not the problem. We're all going to fail. The question is, what do you do after you fall? We can learn a lot just from the life of Peter, this apostle. And some of you think your life has gone so wrong that you can never be used by God. And I tell you, He can use you in spite of you. He can use me in spite of me. Because He's a gracious and merciful God. Though Peter denies Christ three times, we see God using him for great things. God didn't just throw in the towel on Peter. He was patient with him. And you shouldn't throw in the towel on yourself for God has great things in store for you. He has prepared great works for you before the foundations of the world. And so, will you live your lives in failure? Those of you who have failed are in the midst of failure? Or will you be like Peter and get up and repent and turn back to God? Trusting in Jesus Christ. We are reading His letter. God used Him in magnificent ways. Even after He failed and God will use us as well. Even after we fail, if we are simply repent and turn back to God. We see a description of Peter, this apostle, the sent one. But secondly, we see a description of his readers as well. Paul is writing this letter to a certain people to encourage them, to ex exhort them in light of their great salvation they have in Jesus Christ. Who are they? Well, we have a description here in the latter part of verse 1. Let us read 1 Peter 1, 1. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. What we have here is a list of places within the Roman providence okay, in which you would call today modern Turkey. And if you want to be a little bit more precise, it's in northern Turkey. While those places, I promise you, are important. Due to time, I don't want to focus too much on those individual places as much as I want to focus on the words alien, scattered, and chosen. Peter calls them aliens. What is he talking about? Is he talking about some extraterrestrial beings? No, he's not. Listen, these people were considered aliens and strangers. If you will, look at chapter 2, verse 11. He calls it and he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the fleshly, uh, fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. The Greek word here used uh, for aliens means a person who for a period of time lives in a place which is not their normal residence. It's no mistake he's calling these people aliens and strangers. Peter's making it clear to these believers that they are strangers and not residents. In a time when Christianity was dealt with on a hostile level, they seemed to be strangers. 
Listen, we as an American people are blessed beyond our minds. Beyond my own understanding, I'm blessed. And while we have the freedom to serve our God in a comfortable manner, we can get caught up into thinking that we are residents here. The rest of the Christians across the world who are truly, physically suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, oh, they feel like strangers, aliens, and they should. Listen, Christians are only temporary residents on earth. And we must not let our lives be shaped by its interest here. Shouldn't we focus on making a home? Um, feeling like this is our residence? Listen, the further we get away from God in the U.S., the more we will feel like aliens. We can't help it. We've been set apart. There, this is not really a new teaching, but even from the Old Testament, we see the support of this idea from those who lived in the, the Old Testament period of times, who lived in faith of the coming Messiah. That we as Christians are not residents on this earth, but this is not our home. We are simply sojourners. If you will, look at Hebrews 11.13. Hebrews 11.13. It says this, and these people were still living by faith in what they, when, they did, when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Look, even those in the hall of faith admitted that they were aliens and strangers in this earth. What are you this morning? Are you an alien? Are you a stranger? Are you comfortable where you're at? Do you feel comfortable with the people you're around? Never getting into controversial issues. You may be a resident right here instead of being an alien. I put myself in places that make me feel like I'm not part of this world. And I can promise you, you'd be appalled at some of the stuff I hear. People think I'm an idiot. <laughs> Last night a guy asked me, Stuart, you really believe in that stinking fairy tale? Of course I believe in that. It's not a fairy tale. Listen, Christ was an alien. And they hung Him on a cross and many of the disciples were killed for their faith. They were strangers. But let us not forget the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. The promised place that has been prepared for us as believers as we see in John 14. It's truly our home. Not here in the kingdom of God. Have you made this place your home? Are you a stranger? Do you fit in? 
Some have made a couple different places their home in this world. Kids, are you the weird ones? Are you the Jesus freaks? Because the reality is when we step into the world, we ought to look different. Oh no, Stuart, we've got, we got to mold in. No, we're aliens. We're strangers. And we should look different. We should look different in our community, in our homes, in public, and in our school systems. We should be looking different. And if we're not, we need to evaluate our lives to see how we are living in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we sang some songs this morning that sure seem to say, Oh, I want to be that one that consistently serves you. But yet we step into the world and we want to be nice, uncondemning. Are we strangers or are we residents? Church and church life is not something we just fit into. And the reality is it's not just something someone else fits into either. It's something we are. And people are watching to see if we're some kind of part-time Christian or if we're a full-time Christian. We should not be residents. We should be strangers. Sojourners. Aliens. And as time goes on, things will become worse. So the Bible tells us. And people will become lovers of self. Lovers of money. Boastful pride. Abusive, obedient to parents, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiven, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having a form of godliness while yet denying its powers. The Bible says have nothing to do with such people. Do you fit in or are you an outcast? We should be viewed as an outcast. Because when we are truly crucified with Christ and no longer live, it is Christ who lives in us. And so when they see us, they'll say, Dude, you're an alien. You're a Jesus freak. Stop talking to me about the Bible. Because what's in you will come out. If you've truly been crucified with Christ, then it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. Listen, times started bad with Christ. They were a pagan people, hatred of Christ and His ways and His teachings, and they were in bad with Christ. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. The exhortation that I have for you right now today is this. Whom will you choose to serve today? Man or God? Christ or hunting? Jesus or sports? You fill in the blanks. What is it? Listen, don't miss what it says. These people, these aliens, these ones that are scattered, these ones that are strangers and sojourners are what? Chosen. They're chosen. What we have here is the doctrine of election. 
Now I'm not going to get real deep into this doctrine because I'm not going to solve the issue today. It's been debated for a long time. But when you learn about this, you will have to decide where you stand as a follower of Christ. And I have beloved brothers who are mine, and we agree to disagree, and we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified and move on. And so if you disagree with me this morning, it's okay. I'm okay with your disagreeing. I've debated it for years with my dear Calvinist friends on the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and how all that works together and why, where that ties together at the top is above my pay grade. You may have no idea what I'm talking about. What in the world are you talking about? Well, listen, as you study the Word of God and as you grow in your faith, and as you learn the Word of God, you will become aware of some of these things. And somewhere in your walk, you will begin to take a stance on one side or the other, or maybe not. I take a middle stance. If you want to know where I stand, I call myself a Calminian. Okay? I preach like an Arminian and I walk away like a Calvinist. These aliens, strangers, are chosen. It's the fact of why they're aliens on this earth. Because before the foundations of the world, God chose them and wrote their names in the Lamb Book of Life to be residents of the U.S. of A., Africa, Ukraine. No. Residents of the Kingdom of God. Every one of you that have become a Christian have been chosen, and I don't want you to miss that. We can't delude and take away the doctrine of election. God chooses people. But how does He choose them? Well, my Calvinist friends claim that God chooses some for heaven and some for hell. And let me tell you, you will be bombarded with philosophical reasoning, illustration of how all this takes place. But let me tell you something. The Bible that I read and study doesn't teach God sends people to hell. People send themselves to hell based off of the choice they make to choose or reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He predestined us, is what we find in Ephesians 1. In Him whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His will. Listen, God is an all-knowing God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And God desires is very clear in the Bible. His desire is not to send people to hell. It's to see them come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 reads this, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. All means all. Any means any. 1 John 2.2 says, And He Himself is the propitiation of our sins. Who's He talking about? Jesus Christ. 
He's the propitiation for our sins, but not only our sins, but also those of the whole world. You can't narrow it down to a few select. Listen, the atonement of Christ was not limited. Now we can get into semantics that's different. I can argue with the Calvinist that yes, limited atonement's okay, long as it's whom Christ chose. But it's not limited. Not one drop of blood that was shed on Calvary went unspilt for nothing. It wasn't wasted. Why? Because God knows all things. And when Christ went to that cross, He died for the chosen and the elect. Because God knew, because He based His election off of those who would choose Him. Because of His foreknowledge. Well, Stuart, you can't really say that. The Bible don't teach that. I hear that all the time. But right here it says... Who reside as aliens scattered, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God didn't remove our free will. Otherwise we'd be robots and puppets on a string. Listen, if you go to hell, it's your own fault because He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, Jesus Christ. Your name is listed in the Lamb's Book of Life, folks. It's not added later. God may check your name off of a list when you heed the drawing of the Holy Spirit in your life and accept Jesus Christ as Lord. And listen, if God is drawing you to Himself, you better heed that call today. Because each one of us will give an account. And just because someone has told you God chooses some for heaven and some for hell, don't you think you're not responsible? Because we all have a responsibility to receive Him. Again, nowhere in the Bible does it say accept Him. It says receive Him. The cross, listen, is sufficient. But it's only efficient to those who choose Him. It's sufficient to save everybody. But it's only efficient to those who come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and accept Him, receive Him for who He has claimed to be. It's not limited... 1 Timothy 2, 3 says this, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the heart cry of God. But they will tell you, Oh, we're all headed to hell. That's true. And we're on this escalator headed down into hell. In God in His great mercy, in His love, He just decided to choose so and so and so and so and so and so off of here. And the rest are just going right on down with the rest of them. I personally feel at the moment when God pulls one off of that escalator and leaves one, He is unjust. Well, Stuart Howard, who are you to tell God He's unjust? Well, listen... Only because He has the ability to save all. 
If my house was on fire, and my kids were about to be burned to death, and I walked into the house, and it's going up in flames, and I get my son Elijah, and I pull him out of the house, and I had the ability to get all of them, you'd say, you're sick. That wasn't just. That was unjust. Now, I'm not here to judge God. But I see in Scripture, God teaches He doesn't want anyone to perish, but He wants all to come to repentance. He wants everybody to be saved. And listen, if you believe that God chooses some for hell, chooses some for heaven, listen, I don't think that's going to send us to hell. We just have a difference in theology. I don't believe in limited atonement. I don't believe in irresistible grace. Because what I see in Scripture, I can't throw away. I say, I don't understand it. I see God chooses, and I see God gives us free will, and at some point, we're held responsible. And where that crosses, I don't know. But I'm going to treat every one of you as if you could be saved. And I'm going to preach the Gospel to you as God is going to save you. And I'm going to leave the choosing up to God. John 1.12 says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever... The chosen are those that choose Christ. The whosoever will. We see in Revelation 22.17, the Spirit and the bride says, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. The whosoever wills are those who are the redeemed. The hard cry of God is that none would perish. And those that are Christ or in Christ are sealed in Christ. We are the elect. We are the chosen. And so yes, you should be of another world. You should be aliens. You should be scattered. Why? So that you can share the hope of Jesus Christ all over the world. Because you were bought with a price. You are not your own and I am not my own. We are slaves, no longer to sin, but to Jesus Christ. Share your faith as if God is going to save every man because the reality is, is we don't know who's going to be saved and who's not. We see a description of Peter, this apostle, whom did wonderful things for the kingdom of God, and yet failed in so many places. We see a description of his reader, the chosen, the aliens, but we also thirdly see a description of God's work. We know about the chosen... But now Peter really gives us a good understanding of just how that happens. Verse 2. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. All those passages bring together the Trinity of God. We see God the Father, we see God the Holy Spirit, we see God the Son. Right here in chapter, verse 2. If you are a believer, you're, you are saved apart from your works, which is based off of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The, in, the, in the foreknowledge of God, He knew that you would receive Him or reject Him. But listen, you can't be saved apart from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You are dead in your trespasses, Scripture teaches us, unable to save yourselves. Listen, dead people don't respond. And you and I are both dead until the Holy Spirit draws us to Himself. Now God is not going to make you choose Him. He will draw you to Himself and you will have to choose Him as He draws you. It's by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you're saved. I'm not going to limit on who that might be. I'm going to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. I'm going to tell you today, believe in Christ and the saving power of Jesus Christ while trusting the Holy Spirit is working in someone's life here today. God knows you better than I do, but apart from the work of God, the Holy Spirit, you can't change. It's called total depravity. Because of our wonderful parents, Adam and Eve, sin has entered to every man. And we are unable to save ourselves. We're in a pool of slime, sin, and disobedience without a ladder to get out of it. And the Holy Spirit is the ladder whom puts it down in there for us. And we have to choose if we're going to climb out or we're going to roll around in that stuff and enjoy that sin for a, for a while and hope we can beat the test of time. Because there will come a day and a time where we, was, we will not be on this earth anymore. If you feel like God is calling you to believe in Him, trust in Him for salvation, you better not wait. Today is the day of salvation. And you know what? We're not granted one more breath. So don't push away the call of God in your life, the work of the Holy Spirit. We see in Acts people resisting this Holy Spirit. And the five points of Calvinist, one is irresistible grace. You can not resist the Holy Spirit, they say. But in Acts 7.51 it says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and in ears, you are just like your Father, always resisting the Holy Spirit. They resisted it. And many resist it today. If you're here this morning, let me tell you, you can resist. But if God is calling and knocking on the door of your heart, you better answer it. Because He's knocking. So that you can begin to obey Christ. That you can come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that you can be covered, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. It takes the Father's foreknowledge. 
It takes the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, make you more in the image of Christ, to draw you to Himself, and it takes the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary to shed that sinless blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Because all of this, Peter ends with this salutation. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. You see, when we understand we're chosen, when we understand we're truly the elect of God, we see the grace in that. And the peace of knowing we are sealed in Christ for eternity. Do you know that peace this morning? Do you know that grace this morning? Do you have it in the fullest measure? Well, I'm here to tell you you can today. Listen, you may already be a follower of Jesus Christ. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Covered in the blood of Christ. We're going to get into Peter and we're going to see a persecuted people. People struggling. And you know what? We struggle in our daily lives. And some of you are being persecuted for your faith. Praise God. But some of you may not. And I encourage you today to stand firm in your faith. Be willing to give an account for the hope that is within you. This grace and peace and the fullest measure should be us as believers. And if you're not feeling that peace this morning as a believer, if you're not feeling the mercy of God this morning as a believer, then I tell you, Jesus Christ is our hope of salvation. It doesn't matter what happens to us in this world. It doesn't matter what circumstances come before us. The grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is our hope. We are not of this world. We're aliens, sojourners. And who cares what happens to us here? This is not our home. One day we're going home and we're going to see our Savior face to face. And I hope He looks at me and He says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. What will He say to you? Today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, call out in faith to God. Receive Him. If He's drawing you to Himself, let us go to the Lord in prayer.